Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. Living Corporate is brought to you by Canaries. Let me tell you about Canaries. Canaries is a tech company formed in 2018 by black founders who experienced inequities in the corporate world like most of us in the workplace. They saw typical diversity initiatives, but knew that to create systemic change, diversity, equity, and inclusion needed to be done differently. They're still ahead of the curve, focusing on the E and the I using a data-driven approach. Think Canary in the Coal Mine. The name is a nod to the canaries coal miners used to bring into mines to determine if the work environment was safe or undesirable. That's what they do for companies. They help you find the folks you need to listen to, the canaries, who will help you diagnose, measure, and attack your DEI challenges. Canaries has your back. Check them out at www.canaries.com backslash employer. That's www.canaries.com. K-A-N-A-R-Y-S dot com backslash employer. Our neutrality is not neutral. Our interpretations of what is neutral are more often than not associated with a specific set of values. Values that center European colonists or white Americans' values, while deeming other cultural values as less than, and in the case of the workplace, unacceptable or even penalized. Example of this can be seen in common English idioms, to each their own, and it's a shark-eat-shark world. These common phrases indicate individuals are, above all, entitled to their own opinion and have the responsibility to do whatever they need to do to get to the top. We can see this in the competitive nature of promotions and professional growth, and it is often seen as a fact and normalized. Yet, in Japanese culture, harmony or group cohesiveness is valued more than being the best within a group of colleagues. Thus, promotions and raises and the implications of how they would change the work dynamic are considered before any changes are made. Instead of competition, collaboration is operationalized as part of the decision-making process. The problem is we value one set of values more than others, further solidifying the roots of injustice and inequity across underrepresented groups. In order to operationalize justice, we must take an active, intentional stand in programs, policies, and behaviors in order to validate ways of thinking beyond those that prioritize 
white cultural norms. It means bringing validity and power to sets of values, truths, and ways of being, living, and thriving that have been dismissed as unpractical, not our culture, inefficient, or not factual compared to white American culture. What I just read was a series of insights from the Winters Group. Anyone who listens to Living Corporate knows that I love the Winners Group. Shout out to Mary Francis. Shout out to Brittany Janae Harris. Shout out to Marisha. Shout out to the entire team over there. Just thankful for their work. The reason why I wanted to start off Living Corporate's podcast today with that quote is simply for uh, the theme, which is that neutrality is not neutral. Okay. When you see dynamics, when you see issues in and outside of the workplace where one group is being clearly oppressed, when you see one group's values, culture, humanity being deemed less than to another group, that's wrong. And it's not neutral to be silent. To be silent uh, means to side with those who are oppressing. And it's at the direct detriment of the oppressed. It's important to consider power dynamics and the rationale we have when we choose to be silent. Those are decisions. Those are decisions. Those are decisions. Ask yourself, what is it that you're protecting and why you're protecting that thing when you are silent? Silence isn't always bad, but silence isn't always good either. And I'm going to tell you, believe it or not, the best thing you have, the most powerful thing you have, the most valuable thing you have is your voice. I know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this, uh, this consulting thing, right? And right now, a lot of people are getting their promotion decisions. And a lot of you swallowed your pride and didn't speak up, allowed yourself to be oppressed so you could get your promotion. OK, so you got your shiny new promotion. You're a manager now. You're a senior manager now. You're a director now. You maybe even a partner now. How do you feel? Maybe you feel like relieved right now. In a year, you're not going to feel anything. And you're going to eventually question yourself and ask yourself, why did I really sacrifice my voice? Why did I choose to be neutral, quote unquote, in my own oppression? It's important, I promise you, to reject the concept of neutrality. Use your voice and speak up. So that does get into today's topic um, a bit. When we talk about systems and we talk about structures and how they are bent to support and uphold toxic leadership, and to support power and to honor power. You know, I'm really excited about my interview that I had uh, with Dr. Courtney McClooney. Dr. Courtney McClooney is a cool person. Let me tell you why. So Dr. McClooney, she and I connected and really we both got excited because of what we both mutually do. So she was excited about the idea that Living Corporate has this entire database of thought leadership, all of it transcribed, talking about diversity, equity, inclusion and all these unique ways. And I was excited because Dr. Clooney was excited about that. And I was looking for someone who could really like dive into the content and like just research it and like mine all of the nuggets, as it were, of, um, of information. And so she and I had so many conversations about it and she's just a fan and she's appreciative of what Living Corporate is doing. And I'm a fan. Um, I continue to be like just honored to be in her network. I think she's really cool people. And uh, she's just an authentic person. And on top of that, you know, we don't talk about this in mixed company, but I'm going to say it anyway. Black academics can be kind of snobby, right? Like, you know, act like they're, they don't want to talk to you. You know, 
you don't have any letters behind your name, they act like they, you know they're above you. And Dr. McClooney just isn't like that. Like she's super down to earth. She's very approachable. Um, and shout out to all the black academics we've had on living corporate. I'm not talking about y'all. I'm just saying there's a culture of snobbishness, and it's refreshing uh, to have someone on the platform who is not that way. So again, shout out to Dr. Courtney McClooney of uh, Cornell. University, I'm just really thankful that she was able to make the show. Uh, we talk a bit about systems of leadership, uh, organizational development. Uh, we talk about um, a wide array of things, just about how the house kind of tends to win. And what is what is the future of leadership really look like when we're talking about inclusion and we're talking about accountability and we're talking about systemic change? Frankly, it's a bit depressing. I'm going to tell you straight up, but it was a good conversation. Uh, but before we get there. We're going to tap in with Tristan, so I'll see you in a second. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's talk about three signs that you may not be taking control of your career. Most people aren't aware that they aren't in control of their careers, and I completely understand why. While growing up, we were taught that if you show up and do the work, then everything will work out. Unfortunately, this leads to us waiting around for things to happen in our careers rather than taking ownership of making them happen. Let's discuss a couple of ways you can spot if you fall into this category. The first indicator is that you're not your own biggest advocate in your career. This can look like a couple of things. Maybe you live by the motto, keep your head down and do the work, or you wait for your boss to acknowledge the great work you're doing. Maybe you don't know what your next steps look like, so you can't set goals or you can't communicate what you're seeking to others. Being your own biggest advocate requires that you take responsibility to understand your own interests, needs, and abilities so you can effectively communicate them and make informed decisions to land the roles you want and negotiate the salary you deserve. The second indicator is that you don't have career goals. You have to be intentional about your career direction. Take some time to understand what you want from the next level in your career. Is it a promotion, to change jobs, or to transition to a new industry? Instead of letting other people, available jobs, and opportunities decide the next step in your career, take some time to evaluate if opportunities align with your career goals, lifestyle, and values. The third indicator is that you don't have an actual job search strategy. Unfortunately, simply applying online or waiting for a recruiter to contact you on LinkedIn is not a strategy. Telling people in your network that you're open to opportunities without providing clear direction on what you're seeking will not yield the results you want. Take the time to gain some clarity and then learn how to develop and leverage your network to get to where you're trying to go. Also, don't be afraid to seek out help. Often, what got you this far in your career may not get you to the next level. Don't think you have to navigate this on your own to achieve your goals. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by the Liberated Love Notes Podcast part of the Living Corporate Network. The Liberated Love Notes podcast is a starting point for integrating self and community affirmations into your daily practices.
the Liberated Love Knows podcast center the experience of black folks existing in white systems and speaks to overcoming imposter syndrome, disrupting injected and internalized forms of oppression, embodying an abundance mindset, and building a healthy racial identity. Check out Liberated Love Notes podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, hosted by Brittany Janae Harris. Dr. McClooney, how's it going? It's going very well, Zach. How are you? You know what? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, now, look, you and I, we've talked for a while, actually, off the mm-hmm. off the mic. Uh, mm-hmm. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, the work that you do in and outside of Cornell and really why you're so well positioned to speak on matters of, you know, organizational behavior, leadership, diversity, equity, inclusion. Like you sit in this really unique space. And I, I would just like, you know, I don't want to describe you to you. I'd like for you to you know, to break it down a little bit about why you're so equipped to, to speak in this space so so uh, so effectively. Yeah, thank you for the question. I think it um, is a combination of both my educational journey and also just who I am as a person and my lived experiences and how that has also shaped the lens that I take to research and my work. Uh, so currently, I'm an assistant professor of organizational behavior. And organizational behavior as a field tries to understand some of the terms that you've already mentioned. Um, why and how do people behave in certain ways? What makes an effective leader? Uh, how are organizations designed to maximize the best of our human potential? And I'm doing that within the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell. That is a unique entity and institution um, compared to other business schools, ILR has a history of trying to understand work from the employee side. So what are the rights of employees, both legally and also how have workplaces possibly discriminated against groups of employees or implemented standards that are difficult for uh, people from marginalized and oppressed backgrounds to achieve? And within that space of, of trying to understand leadership and how it is that we behave at work in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations, I specifically focus on practices within workplaces that perpetuate marginalization. And, and what I mean by that is organizations have you know, their core business units, their functions, their products, their marketing teams, um, they have a culture, and all of these things on the surface are all towards the goal of selling or or creating some sort of social good in society. But how these goals are enacted tends to reproduce and recreate a lot of the inequalities that we witness in society, mainly because most organizations were started by or, or industries have been developed around the lived experiences of people in positions of power and who have access to capital and can shape uh, the world and the workplace in their own image. So being a person of color, being a Black woman uh, who was also a first-generation college student, I come into the world of studying workplaces with a very different lens and eye, uh, where my grandfather was a sharecropper on the same land that his grandparents were enslaved on for most of his life. Uh, My father being one of the first Black managers 
of the manufacturing plant that he worked in in North Carolina. Both my brother and I working part-time jobs in high school because we were a black middle-class family, which is very different than a white middle-class family just in terms of economic breakdown, uh, where we did have resources to you know, have a roof over our head, but not that additional disposable income that would create opportunities for us to engage in extracurricular things outside of the traditional school model. Um, and we worked in, you know, low wage jobs, very precarious jobs. Like my first uh, employment opportunity was at McDonald's. So learning how that system, that machine operated and really takes advantage of low income black and brown populations as its workforce uh, and, and how there's been marketing disproportionately from McDonald's into black communities. Uh, I know NPR recently covered that in a podcast on, on Code Switch. And I thought that was super telling to to how certain people have lived in the society and what that means in terms of how they expect or do not expect equitable treatment inside of workplaces. Um, so all of that to say, I, I think my unique positioning and situate situating of myself in this in this field means that the type of questions that I'm asking in research are not assuming workplaces are race neutral or that they're gender neutral. Instead, I, I come into those spaces keenly aware of how something as simple as creating a dress code policy or asking for everyone to be professional at work is automatically creating a disproportionate and differential experience for non-white, uh, heterosexual, able-bodied men. And I'll stop there for now. Um, I think we can dig deeper into some of the things that I've shared. No, so thank you for that. Thank you for the context and just level setting. You know, as you describe these things and you talk about inequity, I can't help but think about the fact that so many, many of these organizations, you know, they would say that they have their own systems and methodologies um, to, to say that they, you know, that they're calling out inequity, right? So like every organization has, you know, their HR department or some type of ethics and compliance or hotline group. And, you know, my, my challenge, I think, Dr. McClooney, with, with that is, is that those these systems that these organizations have in place, they're going to naturally not support resolution, right? I would, mm. I, I would say like, so it's like the police, right? Police mm. say, well, we, we've investigated ourselves and we found no wrongdoing, right? right? And we would look at it, we would say, well, but. Yeah. Right. So I'm curious. Yeah. As as you as as you engage the work that you're talking through and and what you're looking at is are the as you engage the work and your research, where at what point does um, like organizational justice come into play mm-hmm. um, and like and like concepts around accountability and even like third party um, third person points of reference or like review? Yes. Uh... I do think this is unique to the field of diversity and inclusion in workplaces, especially thinking historically about the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, That was the first federal legislation that mandated that companies who have been seen as doing wrong or violating some sort of uh, discriminatory policy, they were forced to engage in diversity training. That was the first affirmative action um, sort of mandate. And that was through external external enforcement and also external evaluators. Like it could not be the company itself 
uh, determining whether or not they have completed the trainings or have complied. And we have since seen a decrease in the amount of external uh, enforcement of rules such as that inside of organizations. Instead, we saw an increase in the number of chief diversity officers that are being hired who are still employed by the very companies that they are supposed to be routinely checking and holding accountable. Um, I am excited and encouraged to see the uptick in the number of people seeking and hiring employment lawyers. I do think that that on a uh, individual and grassroots level is one of those external accountability systems that needs to come back into play. I'm especially seeing this more being inside of a labor relations school where it's all about union organizing and you know being a member of an organization, but also having some external support system. I know we recently saw that the Amazon workers who were trying to unionize in Alabama lost uh, to the company. And, and that was quite disheartening because a lot of the industries we have now and the industries going into the future of work are less likely to have unions. And, and with that means we're gonna see fewer um, protections for workers, especially workers who are vulnerable, economic, uh, economically vulnerable, and also those who are more likely to be overrepresented uh, people of color. So um, those systems, we do need to think of organizations as existing within a larger ecosystem um, instead of individual siloed entities that we're all intimately related to one another. And until we do that, um, organizations are going to think and continue to operate as if they have no influence or bearing on things that are happening in the environment, things that's happening with, with society. Um, so what we saw with COVID, for instance, uh, a lot of people were like, oh, no, there's racial disparities with COVID infections. It's like, it's not just disparities. We have systematically shuffled and arranged society uh, where people of color are located at the bottom of a lot of social hierarchies. They're more likely to be in vulnerable uh, occupations that would increase their exposure to COVID. They are more likely to lack uh, healthcare opportunities because racism has eroded the likelihood for them to receive that type of protection. So even when you know pneumonia is bad for a year, flu is bad for a year, we will see these same patterns of a disparate amount of, of Black and Latino people in particular uh, contracting this virus. So, so that's a long-winded answer <laughs> about the systems, but but I think that's that's part of the thing that we need to move towards, and that's this: our systems are interconnected, and organizations right. can no longer pretend to operate as individual systems that so they are part of this larger. Uh, collective. So it's interesting. I, and I think about this more and more as like, you know, we're in, we've been in this phase for like the past, you know, over a year, but roughly mm -hmm. the past year, when you think about um, like, this is the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And then, and then also like the murder of several other black, uh, black and brown uh, folks mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. end of the state is like, we talk about, we talk about racism, we talk about systemic inequity. I'm like, I'm really at a point where I'm just trying to figure out like Dr. McClooney, based on your research, like, can these systems, it would seem to me that the systems just need to be completely dismantled. Yeah. Like, am I, am I tripping? I don't think you're tripping at all. Uh, so one of my favorite scholars right now is is Dr. Victor Ray, who, who just got tenure actually at the University of Iowa in sociology. Shout out Dr. Ray. Okay. Shout out to Dr. Ray. Uh, so he wrote two pieces that I think was really pushing back against this conversation only piece. Um, 
and pushing back against this belief that organizations can fundamentally change. He tweeted one time um, that a lot of organizations wanting to be anti-racist means that they should cease to exist. And I and I think about that a lot, uh, especially the type of organizations that are funding fun, uh, funding the cages that we are holding children in at the border, organizations that are encouraging and allowing the um, continued violence enacted upon the citizens of states. I'm talking about police force now. Um, that we just have so many institutions that are not designed, nor should they be in, in place uh, to, to promote the type of society we are hopefully striving for. I, I'm not sure how we can be an anti-racist society and have a force that does not receive any sort of checks and balances and can literally determine the life of death of individuals at will. Uh, I'm not sure how that is contributing to an anti-racist future. Um, and I think sometimes too about organizations that also think that they are, you know, too good to to possibly harm um, others. So in my class, we we're going to talk about nonprofits in a few weeks, and and a lot of people think of nonprofits as these very good organizations. They are designed to ensure that we are doing good to society. But a lot of these nonprofits, their existence is contingent upon inequality in society. Like if we if we didn't have inequities, then we wouldn't need certain nonprofits or certain Christian organizations to do some of the things that they do. And not just Christian organizations, but um, certain you know religious institutions to to help meet the needs of people. If if we were already addressing that need, so I do wonder sometimes if organizations know that by paying people living wage, which is not just fifteen dollars an hour in this day and age, but a livable wage. Um, that if we provided universal health care that wasn't tied to employment, a lot of organizations would no longer exist. And so I wonder if they are intentionally avoiding resolving some of the inequity we see in society so that they can continue operations. And see, I don't, and I hear you, I don't think that people don't, I don't think that people don't know. I just don't, I don't think people care. Yeah, yeah. Right? I, and I really... <clears throat> You know, it, it it gets me more and more as I just look around. You know, it's been less than a year and we have another uh, person who's been murdered at the hand of the state. Yeah. And in and and, I, and Dante Wright. And so it's like, okay, what are we what are we really doing? Yeah. And I was I was talking to a mentor of mine. I was like, you know, it's interesting because there's a bunch of organizations out there that are like positioning themselves as like these beacons of diversity, equity, inclusion, or thought leadership. But like if you were to like go into their actual organization, like nothing has changed for their actual black and brown employees. You could even yeah. look to the data and things have gotten worse. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like if you were to look at the future of work mm -hmm. and and we talk about accountability and we talk about like third parties and even like the concept of unions, like what needs to happen at like a systemic level to create true equity for the the everyday employee, like, like if you had to give me like the three, like major shifts that need to happen, mm -hmm. what, what are those things that need to happen? Yeah. One of my students shared in class and, and I thought this was such a profound statement. She said, I do think in a capitalist society, we look to organizations to fix a lot of the government failings that we, that we see in society. So one of the major shifts that I do think needs to happen building off of her point is where it needs to be federal 
intervention and, and policies that are enacted and enforced inside of organizations when it comes to things like pay equity and healthcare access. I don't think we can rely on individual companies to do that um, for, for various reasons. So we need some sort of external force that is gonna create those shifts for, for people. Um, and, and that you know is the living wage, making sure people are paid the same for the same amount of work and healthcare access and quality, that needs to happen, I think, at a federal level. Inside of companies, you know, at the industry level, we are starting to see some regulations with uh, NASDAQ stock. You can no longer trade on their board, on their, on their stock if you do not have diversity at the top. I think that can be taken a step further where your entire organization at every level needs to be representative of the constituents inside of the country that you're operating in. So we need to have 13% of all uh, board members on each company trading on platforms to be, to identify as black and even more than 13, right? Like black people living in America, not just black Americans, right? But black people living yeah. in America far num outnumbers 14%. Um, so we need that. We need um, to make sure that there needs to be some divestment, I think, of companies as well when it comes to the entities that are threatening the life, life, life and safety of a lot of black and brown employees. Mm -hmm. So here I'm thinking about divesting from police. So the University of Minnesota ended their contract with the police force after George Floyd's murder. And I think about all sorts of organizations. It's, it's your buildings that are being protected by these police officers after they have murdered black and brown people and children. It's your buildings that are being protected by cops. And, and these buildings are empty, right? We're in we're in a COVID times and most right. of these organizations that are being quote unquote protected are have their employees working remotely. So how can, I, I do think there's a lot of learned helplessness and learned powerlessness mm. amongst CEOs right now where they see themselves as we can make a statement, we don't stand for this, but you also are not telling the police officers or, or not, you know, funding them that we don't need you to protect our buildings. We don't need you here. Right. Like, like how can you, you know, ensure that? And, and I'll share one example or two examples of this briefly. Uh, there's one company that I've been consulting with located in the mostly white area of the country and their black and black, brown employees get stopped by police often on their way to and from work because there's just so few black and brown people in this area. That is your problem as an employer that you cannot ensure the safe entry of your employees into work. My brother works uh, at, a, at a plant in North Carolina and at one point he was on second shifts. The actual way that you staff and schedule workers is also being affected by the racism inside of police force. He was stopped several times during the times that he was scheduled for second shift because he's leaving work late at night. And that is a danger to his likely life and safety. Um, so they were unable to, or they've been discouraged from scheduling black and brown workers during second shift, which is affecting wages, which is affecting their ability to live their life in other ways. Um, so how can we engage in true divestment from entities that are reinforcing racism? If you claim to be an anti-racist organization, are you willing to divest from racist organizations, entities, structures, practices, even if it's what you've quote unquote always done. That's that's a question that I have for companies that claim to really care about black lives and want to ensure that the safety of all people. 
I love that. And, you know, I, I, I think you to your, to your greater point, your overarching point is that it's going to take tangible actions. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe that like there's, there's this, the relationship between uh, the cor- between private and public sectors seem to be so, um, so intermingled, right? Almost mm-hmm. like, almost like you've like mixed two tubes or two toothpaste. It's like hard to really unwrap, untangle that. Um, but but I agree that ultimately it's going to take um, governmental institutions to really mm-hmm. mobilize the type of changes. Because if not, like it's clear, like, and that's that's my thing. Is like I've talked to I've talked to other leaders, and they're like. Well, hopefully this can change. And I'm like, you know what? I think we've seen the limit as to what these organizations are going to do left to their own devices. Right. Like, I don't I don't know if we're going to see much beyond what we've seen. We're not going to see companies come out and really air out their own dirty laundry about how they harm employees. We're not going to see, you know, these massive like points of accountability and folks getting fired or demoted or whatever the case is, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to see that. So it's like, what needs to happen? Right. I think, and I think like, and this has really been a great, I I think it's really been a really good case study over the past, I'm going to say 18 months of like, okay, like (laughs) we given y'all space. We Mm -hmm. didn't, we didn't form, we didn't force y'all to do anything. We let y'all rock over here and y'all gave us, um, some, uh, fireside chats mm-hmm. and some um and you know uh 10 million dollar donations over um four or five years and you're a multi-billion dollar company mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and you've given us some um, you know some really cool posters of some of your black employees or maybe they're just stock images we don't know like that's what you've given us so now we can try something else because that hasn't created the impact that um you've claimed that you want to achieve in your Instagram posts. So now it's time for us to do something. Like I would, I'm hoping that like, but, but I think like even that creates its own conversation around yeah. what's the, how realistic is that? Um, mm. <laughs> and how are you not depressed, Dr. McLean? This sounds depressed. Oh, I am. I totally oh, okay. am. I, okay. I feel like I'm, I've been on a pendulum of emotions where these things are so overwhelming and they're always happening, right? I think once you become aware that racism exists, it's never, can something racist not happen today? It's how is racism showing up today? It's it's just always with us. And it's, what, it's sort of like um, how grief stays with people. It doesn't show up always in the same way at the same time, um, but it's always there. It's always present. And that's how I feel about racism too. It's but what's what needs to happen, and this is on a fundamental psychological level for individuals, it shouldn't only be black and brown people who are shouldering or or sitting alongside racism. This needs to become white people's problem as well, because they are the ones that have the power to actually change a lot of the issues that we're seeing in society. And not just white people, but like white institutions, white processes, white culture, white, white supremacy, like that, that is the cause of racism and and too much of the feeling of it being right here with us is is being shouldered by black and brown people. Um, The real, whether or not it's realistic for companies to actually move beyond all the listening sessions. Um, I think Dr. Robert Livingston, who's at Harvard Kennedy School, he wrote a great piece 
in Harvard Business Review recently on the five steps to advancing racial equity. And what I liked about the steps, and don't get me wrong, I don't think there's only five steps. This is a never ending journey. You know, people have to keep going for the rest of their lives. No doubt. Um, right. But one of the things I appreciated about him breaking down these steps is, you know, awareness was step one, but then there's a step two. And I, I have I have seen very few organizations move from step one to step two. And, and the second step was identifying the root cause of the problem that exists inside of your organization that is contributing to this thing that you are now aware of. You see someone get shot by the police and you think that's a one-off event, but it's not. How inside of your organization have you continued and perpetuated this reality that we now live in, where we have a police state, where black and brown people are not safe when they are interacting with police? This is something that has been fundamental part of all organizations. And, and every time someone thinks, how, how are we directly responsible for that? Most organizations in the US and in Europe, where that matter, uh, started because of the money that was uh, received and passed down from generations for the continued exploitation of black and brown people here and abroad um, in some form or, of another, or another. Uh, so like enslavement, for instance, how many, families that started, you know, companies that still exist today benefited from the continued economic exploitation of Black people in this country or benefited from the um, colonization and exploitation of Black and brown communities around the world. That is how you have directly contributed to us not living in communities where we feel safe, to us being segregated into the type of neighborhoods where police officers are over-policing to the creation of the police force, to literally uh, recapture enslaved people. That was the purpose of police officers in this country. Right. And that is an institution that was built, that your you know company was built off of that foundation. Right, right. Even, even the quote unquote new tech companies haven't like completely uh, changed the business model. There's still hierarchies. They're still, you know, my my students and I, we talked about how the reason why we need to continuously look to history to see what's happening today. The role of the middle manager came from plantations, right? Like listen, it listen. wasn't the plantation owner who was no. directly overseeing the slaves. It was the enslaved people. It was the middle managers. And what is the role of middle managers today? It's to ensure that certain people stay in line. It's, it's to keep right? it's to keep the workers in line. I mean, that's like, yeah. you know, we when we when we talk, we had Dr. Caitlin Rosenthal on. Yeah, many moons ago, right? We were and that and talking about her book, Accounting for Slavery. Like mm -hmm. that whole structure, like it's been there for the past, for centuries. Mm -hmm. And 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 I really think though, going back to your other thing, I just I also believe if we look at history, and one day I'm gonna get a black historian on here. Yes, but <laughs> but, but here's the thing: like we've seen over and over again that white people really don't do well with holding themselves accountable for white supremacy. Like if they were, if they if as a group historically from a anthropological what's the word that's right come on and from an anthrop anthrop anthropological perspective mm -hmm. we've yet to see like white americans white americans say right. look we're we we're not doing this well okay so we're gonna yeah. do this now like we haven't seen that before shout out also i'm putting the link is when affirmative action was white because that's a really good book but the point is is that mm. like there's like there's like i think there's just a this huge gap and like and, the, and then, like the bigger question I have is like, even when this is a this is a really depressing episode, I, and I no, 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 this is a heavy week. This is yeah. it is it's a heavy week. I heavy. I want to be honest, like so it's like even when you even in, introduce third party institutions, like what what 
what mechanisms are in place to make sure that they're also operating effectively and like really yeah. gathering just like that's that's the other piece too right because yeah. even like in these organizations right like most professional services com- firms or companies they have like an ethics and compliance group right so mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. supposedly sit outside of the quote unquote business and they kind of jurist they they when you call the hotline they are supposed to kind of step in and do an investigation but the reality is is that those groups those organizations they still exist within the ecosystem of that company mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so i'm kind of going back to the top of our conversation right but like but like if i take a step back and i say okay but even if i've been in a third party group that isn't a part of that company that org still exists within this greater ecosystem of this like capitalist structure Yes. And that's exactly where I thought you were going, where, you know, how do we advocate for equity when our wages, our livelihood, our well-being is still tied to institutions that make their money off of inequity? Like like there is this weird, uh, you know, one of the things I wrote down recently as something I was thinking about in my research is um, looking at practices of organizations that claim that they're trying to, you know, support the well-being and economic well-being of, of Black people, it's like we're still dependent, though, on these organizations. Like, how can there be a liberation type of economy where me making what I need to make to survive in the society and in the collective of the marginalized people, you know, being able to survive is not contingent upon or tied to these institutions that continue to perpetuate inequality. That is something that's beyond our imagination, right? Or at least mine. Right. I, mean, I won't speak to other people. But nah, that, that is something I struggle with. I'm like, man, my goodness, I see where the problems are. Right. I see the, the quick fixes, like you were talking about. Like there, there are some easy fixes. I think a lot of companies are just holding their cards to their chest and cl- you know, clutching their pearls and not willing to engage in those quick fixes. Things like passing the crown act at the state level and ensuring that that's being enacted. Like that's a, that's a simple fix, but the larger things, like how do we, yeah, create a liberated economy of, of marginalized people where they're not beholden to the emotions of, of, you know, white institution, white people on any given day, you know, being told that this white man had a bad day. Like why, why are, why are our lives in jeopardy because of, someone it's, else having a bad day and i think that happens on a systemic level yeah. it's so scary right so you think about yeah. like and so like you know like a couple of podcasts ago i was talking about you know really like the lives and livelihoods of black people are really like dictated at the whim of white folks and it's scary yeah, yeah. Like that's that should like that should scare you it's like you know this person who has power because of their own like they could be having a bad day mm-hmm. they have they have some unresolved trauma. They have some because of their own racism, like be, and because of where they sit, in, coupled with where they sit in the organization, they can literally just jack you up. Like and like, there's nothing yeah. that can happen. Like there's nothing that you can do. And yeah. like and so, and so it's like I, to your point around like imagination. I think for me, as like I continue to explore on and off mic um, these conversations and ideas around equity, like I'm I'm going to allow myself to imagine further and reject certain like organizational or hierarchical premises that I think that I believe really stymie these discussions, right? Like, mm. like, like this conversation to me has been so helpful because like, we're talking about like these systems at large. And I also believe that we're not really encouraged to think systemically. Like we're encouraged to think situation oh, yeah. to situation to situation. Right. Right. 
Right. Or even for, you know, whenever we call out racism, I don't have a racist bone in my body. That's not possible. It's like, but it's not about you as an individual. It's about right. what has systemically been put in place. Um, and there, yeah, there, there is a lot of encouragement, especially in an individualist capitalist society like the U.S. to not think in collectives and to not think systemically and or even in an ecosystem way. Um, which is is going to lead to, you know, you mentioned future of work, like other disasters, especially around climate change. And that requires collective action, not individual action. So, yes, we can recycle as much as we want to as individuals, unless these large companies change their practices. It, it will be for not like for or like, you know, it's not going to lead to systemic change. And most of the communities around the world, countries around the world who are going to be directly affected by climate change are the most marginalized and vulnerable people of any given country. Um, and so we're just seeing the same model replicate over and over again, because all of the small fixes have not addressed the larger systemic issues, which are truly at the heart of, you know, white supremacist organizing. Yeah. No, nah, straight up. And I think, I think to that, to that point, it's like the oppression that we've experienced uh, and, and that and the oppression that black and brown people have experienced as well as the the oppression that has been enacted by the majority has been so extreme and like it's been so it's been so radically oppressive that we need radically we need we need we need radical response right but like what's happened is we've been we've been we've we're looking at centuries of systemic oppression and let's just say if you want to if you want to if you want to um give yourself an out We'll say we've been looking at 50 years of yeah. systemic oppression and we're trying to respond with very meager, very incremental mm-hmm. solutions. And that's frankly, and like like MLK said that in his letter from letter from a Birmingham jail. Like, like we've been having the same conversation since like 1950 something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like this this particular conversation. So uh look, Dr. McClooney, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time to job stop by uh, by Living Corporate. Um, before I let you go, anybody you want to shout out? Any parting words? Thank you so much, Zach, for this conversation and for this platform. I think these conversations are helping to fuel and shape, you know, what we hope to see in the future. And and so I just would like to shout out and thank, of course, my parents and my and my brother for living their black life out loud alongside me and for really demonstrating all the ways that we can experience both the joy and pain of blackness. And I think about you know the music of our of our culture and why it is both these you know horrific instances, you know, shout out to an RIP to DMX, but if you ever have listened to his lyrics, they are filled with pain and rage. At the same time, he is hyping himself up to overcome all of these like you said systemic oppressions that we've continued to face and our ancestors face. And I feel like that's what it means to be like black and brown America is to live at this nexus of joy and pain. Um, so I do hope and pray that all of us experience joy in some form or another um, and, and continue to shoulder on. Yeah. Dr. Thank McClooney, you. thank you. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Thanks. P- peace. Bye. Thanks, Dr. McClooney. Thank you. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network, hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards. The Leadership Range is focused on having real, raw, soulful and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, 
professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Hey, look, I want to shout out Dr. Courtney McClooney again. I want to shout out Tristan Layfield, a Layfield resume, continuing to be a great member of the team. Y'all, if you haven't checked out the tap in with Tristan every Thursday, you're missing out. All right. Make sure you check it out. Now, I know we got the ads in here, but I wanted to reinforce that. Now, look, before I let you go, a couple things you can do for me. All right. Check out Living Corporate on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. All right. Just give us five stars on there. And then give us a review. All right. Second thing you can do is share this podcast with a friend or a colleague or a family member or a supervisor or a I don't want to say subordinate, but some of y'all, you know, subordinate, you know, y'all managing people share it with your team. Right. Share it on your newsletter, whatever the case it is, you know, just share it around. OK. The last thing is make sure you're staying tuned to Living Corporate. OK. We got some stuff coming up. Very excited about very. It's just it's just exciting stuff. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to hold it right there. OK. Till next time. This has been Zach. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.